Now, I will say this is Edward's last sermon in this series. He'll pick up again sometime in the summertime, I think so. Uh, he won't ask for it, but I will say it. Uh, he has put off or extended some of his cancer treatments so he's not sick to preach on Wednesday night. It's those tough guy mentalities uh, of the world. But he has a treatment this Friday and for the first time in a couple weeks, a treatment on the next Friday, which are the real doozies that take the wind out of him. He doesn't like to admit it, uh, but uh, I appreciate uh, his willingness to extend it. It's nothing dangerous to do it, but to extend it so that he could get through and preaching. It means the world to me that it means so much to do God's work in God's will, and so I appreciate that. I've also enjoyed watching all of these. I'm done with discipleship tonight for a while because next week, Wes Wade is going to be preaching for five weeks, and he wrote his own sermons. Yeah. Uh, Edward shares an office with him, so he can talk to that. But uh, he's been sitting with me, and we've been writing together. He made the mistake of saying, Wes did, I think reading and, and doing the lessons from somebody else is too easy. And now after nine and a half weeks of studying it together, I said, how easy do you think it is? He goes, I think I might go back to doing it that way. I'm not sure. We'll see next week. Yes, it's not easy, but it is wonderful. Uh, before I begin this evening, I want to give a shout out to my dear friend, friends, the LePages on the island of Guernsey. Uh, I should have done this last week, and uh, I had a lot on my mind and forgot. Um, I've already apologized to them. Uh, on Easter Sunday, those of you who know the story of Guernsey and the struggle they've had there for year after year after year, on Easter Sunday morning, they had 19 people in church. What a blessing. The fruit of years of struggle and faithful, no-quit service to God. Uh, the Lord blessed them. They've been through very, very hard times. They're still going through hard times. But God blessed them finally with a lot of people turning up to listen to a gospel message on Resurrection Sunday. Um, so the other thing is uh, my regular glasses are in for repair. These are my backups. They're great for reading, not so great for looking out at you. So if you're ever planning to sleep through one of my messages, now's the time to do it because you're just a blur to me. Um, of course, if you try and lie down, I will notice that, but I, no I can't tell if your eyes are open or closed. Uh, this is the 11th and last lesson in a series about Joshua in the Promised Land. Now, there's been a lot of repetition, you may have noticed, through the messages, um, because that's the way the Bible teaches us. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a constant repetition of core themes that are foundational to our understanding of God and his purpose for us. Clearly, uh, we are slow learners. Tonight, we're going to break that repetition cycle by taking a closer look at Joshua's God, who is such a diligent teacher. Specifically, what is the essential nature of a God that motivates him to align himself so closely with people, us, you and me, who are so foolish 
and so sinful and so unlovely in many respects. What on earth could motivate God to love us so much? And how does our God, with a capital G, differ from other gods with a small g? Oh, I see my wife's just arrived from doing some discipleship. How did it go? <laughs> um, both of us were working tonight. Um, how does God differ from other gods? Well, there are gods to suit every taste. They are all manifestations of Satan, the false gods. Every single one of them, doesn't matter what they call themselves, they are manifestations of Satan, the temporary god of this world, and the enemy of the creator of all worlds. Satanic gods are seductive, demanding, unyielding, cruel, frightening, and dishonest in the treatment of their followers who will find to their horror that when they have no more use to their gods, uh, when they have nothing more to give, they are cast aside as fit only for the furnace, like trash to burn up. The end of all followers of false gods and false religions is to be consumed with Satan in a lake of fire. Our God, happily, is nothing like that. Before he asks anything of us, he wants to develop a relationship with us. That is an amazing difference between the true God and false gods. The true God desires a relationship with you and me before he asks anything else of us. He is the God of the covenant, a binding agreement between two parties that states their responsibilities to each other in simple terms. A covenant says, if you do that, I will do this. And you both agree. A covenant in Abraham's day was a blood oath. There's an amazing passage in Genesis chapter 15 that speaks in some detail of a covenant and how uh, it is executed. And pastor preached on it very recently. I've preached on it in the past. Uh, but it's so relevant to tonight that I just want to talk a little bit about the covenant. Uh, it was, in the Old Testament, was used to, for example, to arrange a marriage. A marriage required the lead, that the leading members of the two families would gather and discuss details of the upcoming union, and this included the conduct of the spouses, each of whom had defined responsibilities to fulfill. And after the terms were agreed between the two families, between essentially the two fathers, a small trench was dug, an animal was sacrificed, it was cut in half, one half on either side of the trench, so that the blood would run into the trench. And at that point, the father of the groom took his sandals off and walked through the blood-filled trench, splashing blood on himself. The message was that if any promises he made on behalf of his son, including the good behavior of his son in the marriage, the bride's family could kill the father and walk in his blood. Or if we had covenants like that in this day, there'd be a whole lot less divorces. Then the bride's father took off his sandals and walked through the blood to back up his promises with his life. 
The rewards and penalties of a blood oath were understood by all, which explains why Abraham fainted in terror when he contemplated signing a covenant with God. Uh, you can read about that in chapter 15 of Genesis and verse 12. The seriousness of that covenant was underlined by the fact that a lot of animals were slaughtered. Usually it took just one. The thought must have come to Abraham. I'm about to sign a covenant with Almighty God and there's no possible way that I can keep it. By taking this blood oath, he was signing his death warrant. So God was the first one to pass through the trench as symbolized by uh, a burning torch uh, that reminds us of, uh, sorry, a burning oven that reminds us of the burning bush and the pillar of fire in Exodus. This sealed God's end of the covenant. Well, it was then Abram's turn. But something extraordinary and unprecedented happened at that moment. Before Abram could enter the trench, a burning torch symbolic of our Savior, who would come one day as the light of the world, a light that shines in darkness, that torch went through the trench. By passing twice through the blood in that moment, God demonstrated to Abraham in a marvelous way that nothing else could have done to quite the same extent. A prophetic act that he would pay with his life every time Abraham broke the covenant. Instead of Abraham having to pay, God would pay. And he swore that oath at that time in the name of his son and in his own, own name. Just let that sink in for a moment. That's how much God loves us. That's what he did on our behalf. The God of the universe did that for you, me, and Abraham. Nothing depended on Abraham. Nothing depends on us, the children of Abraham, by faith. God confirmed the impossibility of changing his purpose by sealing the oath of our as I've said, by two unchangeable things. His word of promise, that is the Logos, and himself. Hebrews 6 verses 13 and 18 speak of that. He performed the sacrificial act because his essential nature is love. And when he turns that love towards us, he desires that we in turn should love him. Oh, and we're so stingy with our love sometimes. And he never holds back. We first learn of his love through our salvation. Every Christian knows. A lot of worldly people know that wonderful statement that kind of becomes stale to us. But it's so true. It's so deep. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But what does that mean to us? I mean, what do those words mean? How can we understand God's love when we know so little of true love? We're novices at this thing. 
Love is, is a mystery to us, real love, true love. Well, we can approach the answer in different ways. Firstly, as we spend time reading his word and thinking about what we read, we find the answer as we walk with him day by day and grow in our understanding just as a fortunate child of good parents finds security and rest in their demonstrable love. We find the answer in the storms of life. When, like the children of good earthly parents, we cling to our Heavenly Father for comfort when bad times happen. We get to know God real well in those times and appreciate his love in those times. We find the answer as we contemplate all aspects of our matchless Savior. Consider that the life of Jesus marked the first time since the creation of Adam and Eve that a sinless human walked this earth. Have you ever thought of that? Adam and Eve were created sinless. The first time any other human being ever walked this earth, and the only time, was when Jesus came. From the time of his birth to the time of his death, he never sinned once. And unlike Adam and Eve, he was never corrupted by sin. So that at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, he could declare that Satan, the god of this world, the evil ruler of this, the temporary evil ruler of this world, had no power over him. He has nothing in me, said Jesus. What a statement. Oh, I wish we could say that. Having earned the right to enter heaven as a sinless son of man, Jesus traded what he had earned for what we never could earn, his perfection for our sin, so that we in turn can share his life and be called sons of God. And this is the profound truth of the statement, God so loved the world. That's the end result of that. That we get to be called sons of our Heavenly Father, sons and daughters, forgiven, cleansed, heaven-bound, forever, through nothing we have done except to accept his love. It's a revelation of God that was unknown to Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David or any of the Old Testament saints. They knew God because of their covenant relationship with him, because of their history with him, their experience of him. We know God because he lives in us. His light is in us. His life is in us. It's the most extraordinary thing. We should never take it for granted. We should never grow tired of that fact. I know my creator because his life burns in my heart. That's just amazing. Transcendent, eternal life activated by love. His love is the basis of our relationship. It's a precious gift beyond compare and beyond understanding. It's a treasure hidden in a field. It's a pearl of great price. And with his life in us, we have everything we need forever. Without it, all we have is religion. And sadly, there is no shortage of religions in the world to represent God. 
but every one of them is blind to the reality of God. So let's pause for a moment and look at the conceit of religion because it provides such a vivid contrast to the real thing. Religions try to explain God to man. Inevitably, the gods so revealed are made in the image of man. False gods have their failings. They are irritable. They are angry. They are uh, double-dealing often. They are overly demanding. They are fierce. They are vengeful. Uh, by contrast, the Christian revelation behind, uh, provides the creator's view of us. Let me say that again. False religions try to provide our view of God, explain God by our, in our terms, while God, in this incredible book, explains us to ourselves. And that's why people hate him so much. That's why people discard this book. That's why you can go and knock on doors and tell people and God's presence is there while you're talking to them about the beauty of Jesus Christ and the fact that God loves you and all he wants is to let you in. And people will turn away. Why? Because they know. He knows. There's no hiding from him. He tells us just like it is who we are. Religion comes in many guises, but they fall into two main camps. Religions that are aggressively engaged with the world, triumphalist and expansive like Islam or Roman Catholicism or Mormonism, they seek to establish by their efforts an earthly kingdom, and they'll stop at nothing to achieve that. Anything goes because, after all, they want to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And then there are religions that are more disengaged and aesthetic, like Buddhism, Hinduism, Shinto, New Age, and others. These are just some examples. Despite their apparent differences, all religions share the view that the way to God requires some effort, following some rules, joining some church or mosque or temple, adopting some discipline or participating in some ceremonies that will take the seeker part of the way or most of the way or almost all the way to God. You're never going to know for sure until you stand at the judgment seat. Seems a little late then, but that's what religion offers you. The focus is on self-effort, and the journey is not easy. Some gods demand a heroic quest, Others call for self-abasement or extraordinary levels of commitment. But all promise a, an unfolding of divine mysteries as the journey progresses, and none guarantee a home in heaven. That certainty, as I've said, only becomes known after you're dead, at which point there are no do-overs permitted. Now, some of them claim, some religions claim to have the inside track. As with secular atheists who look to scientists as their priests, all religions have their knowers, those who've penetrated the mysteries of the other realm, those who have attained to a special insight that explains the mysteries of the gods. Well, that's religion. Uh, there's another religion that 
claims not to be a religion, but it certainly is a religion, and that is the religion of science. We know all about this religion because we've had it shoved down our throats for the last two years during the COVID debacle. Can you remember the number of times you heard people say, it's science? In fact, at one point, I won't mention his name, claimed to be, I am the science. And you fools just need to listen to me. We are the experts. We know what we're talking about. Just do what we tell you. And little by little, it became apparent they were idiots who did not know what they were talking about, but they expected us to believe them, and they still do. The conceit of science, the great conceit of modern man is that we know. We use big words to describe big concepts that explain who we are and how we function and what the world is and how it functions. And beyond that, the functioning of a vast universe that we can view on our desktop computers. You know, if you Google astrophysics, try it when you get home tonight. Put in that little box, that neat little box that Google provides, the word astrophysics. And 171 million possible answers become accessible to you within 0.04 seconds. That's less than half a second. Boom, there it is. If you've got the time, you can read all 171 million articles on the subject. Google God, and you get access to 5,520,000,000 answers in 0.44 seconds. There's nothing we can't know in a blink of an eye. Uh, we live in a world where the omniscience and immutability of God has been replaced by something that seems equally all-knowing and unchanging. Science. Scientists are the new priestly class, the knowers, able to interpret and distill the great mysteries of life and make them comprehensible to the rest of us morons. Scientists are uniquely qualified to penetrate beyond the veil into the holy place of the laboratory and there, at the altar of the test tube, perform their rituals that unlock answers about our origins and our destiny. And it's faith in this power, the power of objective science, that emboldens many to scorn the sentimental idea of God's love. And they consciously reject God's sovereignty, placing man at the center of himself. Unfortunately, the death of God leads us not into light but into darkness. In that darkness lies the death of knowledge, the death of wisdom, and the death of truth. Whether we like it or not, the only truth the only established eternal truth is in this book. Now, you might be called a religious fanatic, a religious fool, a religious moron, an educated, a hillbilly, uh, and worse. But it happens to be true. Truth is right here. When we choose to believe that we are only material beings, products of unintentional, uncaring chance, life is for us an uncertain illusion in which there is no room for sentimental notions of love. 
We cannot really know anything. We can only know that we are things that think. I know, I, sorry, I think, therefore I am. A great philosopher once said. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche described the hopelessness of this folly when he wrote in a book that he appropriately titled The Madman, God is dead. And he's famous to this day for that statement. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? That is written well over a hundred years ago, and it's spot on. That's exactly what's happening in the world today. The true God, the God of love, the God who desires only to have a relationship with us, is cast aside, and we crown ourselves God in his stead. The truth, and it's an inconvenient truth to many, is that we live in a very big universe about which we can know very, very little. To pretend anything else is to proclaim ourselves willfully ignorant, even as we embrace the delusion that we are gods who have successfully dethroned and even murdered God. So how is it possible then to see the truth, to grasp the truth, well, it comes through humility, the clarity of humility. We've come a long way in our modern world since the old Hebrew prophet Ezekiel responded to a question from God with the apologetic answer, O Lord, thou knowest. Ezekiel was effectively saying that he didn't know and he wasn't even going to guess he would not win much respect in today's world. Admitting that you don't know is like a big boo-boo. You're supposed to know stuff, especially if you're a scientist. You're supposed to know the world is dying from global warming. What a preposterous bunch of nonsense that is. But we're supposed to know it because scientists say so. Uh, this morning... Well, yes, it was this morning as Dana and I drove into town. There was this gorgeous orange ball of fire on the horizon. And I remarked to her, that sun is exactly the right distance away from Earth and boiling at exactly the right temperature to sustain life where we are. If, if it's off by a fraction, we wouldn't be here today. And God did that. Boy, there's, you know, there's comfort in knowing that my father is in control to that extent, whatever scientists may say. And that, of course, drives them crazy. There are things we don't know and cannot know and should be educated enough to admit we don't know. Ignorance is not a sin until it is masked by false self-assurance until we approach, especially rather when we approach the things of God. Job discovered this to his cost. Now, 
Job, as you might, may have noticed, pops up constantly in my messages because Job is my hero. He's just everything about Job. I'm so glad for Job being in the Bible because I don't have to go through what he went through if I just learn from his mistakes. And Job discovered to his cost that it's really not safe to get into a debate with God about the purpose of God. And Job was very quickly, as you know, reduced to pleading, I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not, that wherefore I abhor myself, I hate myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now that is acceptable to God. Job, oh, we need more Jobs in our day, not the suffering kind, the wise kind. You know, we're not expected to understand God, but to obey him. We're not called to explain God, but to declare him. That's it. It's really very simple. Don't try and understand. You'll never understand him. Just do what he tells you. And don't try and explain him to unbelievers. Just declare him. Thus saith the Lord. Oh, that's why I wish more of you would come soul winning. Uh... Come knocking on doors. You'll have the time of your life, won't you, Scott? Full of hay fever, the poor guy came with me last night, and we had a time last night talking to people about this God. And it's free. I mean, you don't have to pay a dime for that. Just a bit of shoe leather. We must not repeat the sin of Adam and Eve. By the way, back on the subject of knowing God, this is not about soul winning. I got sidetracked there, sorry. We must not repeat the sin of Adam and Eve who sold their birthright by yielding to the temptation to know. That's why they fell. If you eat this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But God had asked them simply to obey. Don't do that. That's all they had to do was just obey. Obedience is the unchanging requirement of God. When we draw near to him, we discover that he's not interested in our doing. Our performance will never, never measure up to his standard. He's just interested in our being. Being obedient is all that matters, just as Jesus said during his life on earth. I do nothing of myself, for I do always those things that please the Father. Hallelujah. There's the formula for success. It's only when we respond to God's love in submission and obedience that we begin to see and understand. Humility brings clarity. The Apostle Paul prayed for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ that God the Father would give us just beautiful words. Ephesians 1, 16 to 18. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What a statement. What a wonderful life we have as Christians. What an inheritance we have. A little later in Ephesians 3, he prayed, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know what? The love of Christ that passes knowledge. 
that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. All we have to know is that God loves us and wants to fill us with his love. That is all we have to know and cling to and enjoy and receive and relish and praise him for. Just that, one thing, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Paul prayed that knowledge would be granted and understanding would be enlightened not to unlock the mysteries of the universe or to grasp the inner workings of the counsel of God, but simply to comprehend the matchless love of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. That's it. And that certainty of his love brings us the only comfort that matters, the warm comfort of certainty. When we choose to acknowledge God, and draw close to him through Jesus Christ, we begin to discover the vast dimensions of his power, his purity, his preeminence, his perception of us and our sin, his purpose for us and his passion, his unbridled passion in reaching us because we are incapable of reaching him. Of his power, Jeremiah said that he made the earth by his power, he established the world by his wisdom, and he has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. And Hebrews says that God upholds, God's Son upholds everything by the word of his power. He holds the whole universe together. Of his purity, Isaiah said, saw him sitting on a throne, surrounded by angels, crying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, Heaven and earth is full of his glory. Of his preeminence, Isaiah also said, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And then there's his perception of sin. His view of unrepentant sinners is unflattering, to say the least. You read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, and you see what Jesus says to those hypocrites. It's actually frightening. He calls them vipers, blind guides, hypocrites. No mercy there. If you don't want to bow the knee to God, don't expect God to bow the knee to you. His purpose, by contrast, God has an amazing purpose for those who do bow to him. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that everything works together for our good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. What a deal. And lastly, his passion. Our relationship with God is made possible only because of his passionate love for us. Not as we are now, marred by sin, but as he has always intended for us to be. That love, that incredible love is captured by that single amazing statement we've already alluded to. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And that love is captivating. I'll leave you with this thought. There is no way you and I will ever comprehend God, but he is comprehensible in his love. You can actually experience that. 
You can't explain him. You don't really know him. But you can know his love. And that's amazing. You can know it right here. You can see it in your life. We don't know why he loves us, but we can experience the reality of his love. God's love is not a mystery when it touches us. It's a transforming delight. When we receive his love, we know it is enough. Our soul was made to know this, to feed on this, to be transformed by this one thing. The incredible love, the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God. And then we are persuaded, as Paul was, I am persuaded, he said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature or anything else in creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What else could any human possibly want to know? What else could any human possibly want in this life or in the next but the love of God? It is enough that divine love captures us, enraptures us, and transforms us forever. Amen. Father, we...